ran every red light that we got to just in neutral, no power steering, ignition's on. Let's not tell anyone about any of what's just gone on. Gave the hire car keys to uh, PR girl, to Becky, the PR girl from Honda. Thanks very much. Hi, the hire car's outside, here's the keys. And then I, I'm going to bed now. And that was it. Nobody ever mentioned it ever again. Go <laughs> Yeah, I broke I broke my neck in a couple of places, broke my back in three places, a couple of ribs and punctured my right lung at Old Park in 2015. Mission Motorsport Podcast, episode six, I think it is. Uh, we have uh, Peter Hickman who, if you know your motorcycles, you know who he is. Uh, Peter, for those who don't ride two wheels, give us a 30-second rundown of who you are and what you're capable of. <laughs> um, yeah, my name's Peter Hickman. I'm 33 years old. I'm from Louth in Lincolnshire. Um, I'm the fastest rider ever around the Isle of Man TT with a lap record of 135-mile-an-hour average. Uh, I'm the fastest rider around the Ulster Grand Prix with 136-mile-an-hour average. I'm a regular in the BSB Championship, uh, been top six uh, the last three years in the Championship and have four race wins, I think it is, and about 15 podiums, something like that. Good God. <laughs> um, John. Yeah, former, that one up. <laughs> so, so we also have a former Royal Engineer. Uh, did you say Sapper? Yeah, well, I was a full screw when I left, but yeah. Ah, full screw. Okay, so you did. You know, you uh, you made it out the ranks of Sapper. Mega. Uh, tell us who you are. So I am now forty years old. Joined the corps when I was sixteen. Left in November two thousand and five when I was twenty-five to be a motoring journalist. Started with a car magazine. Quite quickly fell into motorcycle magazines, um, and am now a national newspaper columnist. In the in the biggest selling newspaper on a Sunday, uh, Sunday Times best selling author, motorcycle TV presenter, uh, and I own Superbike magazine, which has been in existence since May 1977. I bought it in late 2014. Immediately stopped printing, took everything online, and um, yeah, I'm walking the walk as a bona fide motorcycle journalist. Right, mm. John Hogan. So, thank you very much. Um, both of you, thank you for for joining us. I know it's time out of your evening, and time is precious. Hickey, you're still in the office. What's going on? <laughs> yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm halfway through jobs. <laughs> so, um, yeah, uh, life's been a bit hectic for me actually. Even though uh, the virus has hit, it's been a bit. Although I've not been riding bikes, it's been um, it's been flat out. You know, I, I launched my own uh, performance center, so we're building engines, tuning engines, and also building uh, race bikes and track bikes for people. So that's called PHR Performance. Um, so I've got a couple of full-time employees that now uh, here at the unit all the time. This is actually the unit where the Smiths Racing Team also run out of. So um, I, I own the unit, but the team actually runs out of here. Uh, Darren only lives half a mile up the road, so um, makes sense for him to, to you know run the team from here. Yeah. Uh, so all the super bikes uh, and all the roads bikes as well, all four of them. So that's six bikes in total all get built and maintained here in, in Louth. Um, and then I'm also the importer for Ovali Motorcycles, which is a junior race bike, although adults can race them as well. You'll see a lot of the uh, professionals um, riding around on them, uh, including myself. Um, so, yeah, I've, I've launched a, a junior championship for, for the young guys and girls 
uh, of our sport to try and bring them through the ranks properly and uh, give them a bit of a push, which in the UK we've never really had, uh, and the Italians and Spanish have all the time. So, um, and that's actually what I'm in the middle of doing now. I'm loading the van up, ready to do a test day tomorrow. Where are you doing your test day? Uh, it's at Lockwell Hill, uh, which is uh, near Sherwood Forest, so not too far from here. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, I, I put on some free days um, with the help of OMG Racing, uh, the Rich Energy team um, in the British. I think we're losing you a bit there, Hickey. No, it's, it's glitching as well, mate. All right, okay. Have you got any programs open on your computer that might be slowing it down? Hang on. Are you there, Hickey? Uh, I can... Hello, hello, hello. Yes. <laughs> I can... <laughs> yes, you're here. Just rewind. So, so you're getting, you're, so you're getting younger people into racing. Yeah, that's the plan. So, um, with the help of uh, Rich Energy OMG Racing in the British Superbike Championship, although they're rivals to to myself and the Smith Racing team, um, or the Global Robots BMW team as it is now, um, you know they're really keen on youth uh, in our sport. So, uh, Alan, the owner, came to me and said, "I'd like to help." Uh, has given has sponsored me as Ovali UK to be able to go and hire tracks and allow the junior riders to come to them tracks and actually ride for free and practice for free. So um, we've been booking circuits all over the UK um, and getting kids along and actually allowing them to ride for free. That's extraordinary, John. How is it important? How important is it to get younger people into? motorcycles because there'll be a lot of people out there and be a lot of parents who may listen to well not necessarily mission motorsport because they'll be into it but there's there'll be a lot of people out there kind of squirming going never in a month or sunday you getting my child onto a motorcycle let alone racing how important is it that we keep that kind of thing alive well you know if 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 we just focus on the majority of the audience that will be listening to this you know i was looking at some data earlier with regards the amount of sons that have followed fathers into into the forces, for example, um, and the percentage in the UK and the US is massive. It's almost, I think it's between 40 and 50 percent of uh, of guys that are joining the army now between 16 and 21 have uh, a father or a mother that have served in the forces as well. Oh, right. you, I, you know, I come from a forces background. My dad was in the engineers for 20 years. My older brother in the engineers for, for 15 years as well. Yeah. Um, and if you if you flip that on its head and look at motorcycle racing, I know that Hickey's dad raced, you know, Carl Fogarty's dad raced, Valentino Rossi's dad raced, Ronald Leon Haslam raced, you know, mm. father and son thing is, or or mother and daughter, or however you want to, you know, dress it up, <clears throat> it is what it is, and it's quite it's quite common for really good, high quality racers in the UK to have come from a family that just understands motorcycles. John McGuinness is another great example. The difference that we've got culturally is if you go to Spain or France, Spain in particular, but Spain, France and Italy, and look at how scooters and motorcycles are integrated into everybody's commute, you know, absolutely everyone that lives in central Paris or Rome uh, has commuted at some stage, whether it's school or work, on a scooter. So they all get it. And it's Mm. an accepted form of transport. You know, racers being racers, there's always going to be somebody who wants to go a bit faster than everyone else, whether it's on the way to work or school or round a racetrack. What we don't have isn't so much a talent problem, it's a cultural issue to do with just accepting motorbikes. You know, Icky knows full well how safe a system will be run at that track that he's going to tomorrow. He knows the bikes are perfect. He knows those young guys and girls are going to listen to him and do what they're told and go out and have some fun. The big issue is the people that aren't associated with the sport and what we're doing. It's, you know, you can only educate so many people and and, and drag so many horses to the water, if you know what I mean. And yeah. 
Um, you know, I'm of the opinion that <clears throat> my neighbours next door, I don't care whether they like bikes or not. I'm, I'm into them. My family accept them. It is, it is what it is. Um, as a, as an issue in terms of how competitive we are, if you look at CEV, Dorna, you know, the amount of Spanish passports there are in MotoGP, it is a huge issue. The feeder classes that the UK has and, and BSB, which Hickey races in, is is easily regarded as the highest quality domestic race championship on the planet. The Americans aren't as good as us. The Germans aren't. None of them are. We've yeah. got the talent, but we just don't have that feeder class from spunky 10-year-old school kid to, you know, sat on the BSB grid. That's an entire career's worth of riding there that we... Yeah. We just don't have. There's no format for it unless guys like Hickey are doing what they do. There's there's no real feeder system into it. So Hickey, how are you going out there and identifying these young kids? Because what age bracket are you starting from? Uh, eight. Although we've got a couple of seven year olds that are kind of like with discretion if they if they if they're capable enough. Um, then and are, they, and are these kids getting their knee down? Yeah, yeah. Ah, yeah. oh, makes me so If no. it's not elbow down now, you're nothing. <laughs> <laughs> not, not only the knee down, they're getting their elbow down. Good God. Crikey. So so how, are they all around the country? How do you go and find yeah. them and get them into the Hickey Club? Yeah, so it's a, it's a British championship. It's been run alongside the Rich Energy British Mini Bike Championship, which has been running for a long time, mainly with adults, but they've got kids as well. They've got junior yeah. classes. Um, Ovali is an Italian manufacturer. Um, and they produce a proper GP or mini GP race bike. So it's in between a Mini Moto and a Moto 3 is the best way of describing it. So it's, a, it's quite a bit bigger than a Mini Moto, but it's nowhere near as big as a, as a Moto a Metric kit stuff, Hickey. Yeah, so it's a bit smaller than a Metric kit. Right. Um, What's a Metric kit for someone who doesn't know? Yeah, so same kind of thing, really. It's a mini GP bike, but they're a two-stroke, and they're normally a 50cc or a 70cc. Um, they're quite old now, and the majority of the kids that are trying to ride them at kind of eight or nine years old still are actually a bit too small. The bikes are actually quite big. Mm. Um, and this is where the Ovali kind of sits in there quite nicely because I'm six foot two, and I can ride one no problem at all. But also, a seven-year-old can actually still touch the floor on it. So uh, really? where's the metric kit? They can't. Right, got you. Also, the Ovalis are four-stroke. They're a 110cc, uh, four-speed gearbox. Um, and, uh, you know, who uses two-strokes now? I love a two-stroke. So that's the thing. So two-strokes, I've never ridden one, but I know a very good friend who um, he's more into motorbikes than I am. He's a complete Dunlop and Rossi fanatic. Um, and he he has a KT, is it a KTM 450 two-stroke. Three-stroke. Utter monster of a bike, um, and he he likened it to it's like a mechanical animal. He said this thing is just wild. Now, talk me through how and why a two-stroke is the way it is for someone who doesn't know. <laughs> well, that's quite a difficult one, but um, two-strokes are lighter. Uh, they produce more power than a four-stroke engine. Yeah. Uh, they also produce it in a, in a very different way. So they tend to, once they've been tuned in particular, um, not have a lot of bottom end torque. So you won't be able to drive from low RPM. It's all at high RPM. So that makes them very, very difficult to ride. Mm. Uh, whereas a four-stroke engine, it'd be a lot heavier, um, but it also has a lot more torque. So you'll be able to, like your car, all cars are four-stroke, basically. Um, you can drive away from very, very low RPM very easily. You can ride the bike or drive your car very, very easily and slowly um, yeah. with a two-stroke especially if it's a tuned engine that's basically not possible unless you're revving the bollocks off it then um it ain't going anywhere and, it, and when you are revving the bollocks off it it's hard to ride 
Roger. So, are you getting a, are you getting a good take up for um for these uh, youngsters joining in? Yeah. So we've just um, I say we've only really launched it this year. It was uh, November that I took on the um uh, the importer duty, if you like. Um, we've got somewhere in the region of about eighteen kids between eight and twelve or seven and twelve years old now that have got an Ovali One Ten motorcycle. Um, at the minute, there's twelve that have actually signed up for round one for definite. Yeah. Um, some of them are kind of on the fence a little bit because they're all still a bit new and everyone's a bit, um, you know, some of the riders or, or the parents are a bit like, I'm not sure if I'm, he's ready to race yet or she's ready to race yet. But uh, I think we're looking at probably around 15 mark around one, which will be next weekend. So the 18th and 19th of July is the first round of the championship. Um, my aim was to get 15 riders on the grid. Um, we're pretty much there. So I'm quite happy with that already. So that's before the race has even started. Is it expensive? Is it something someone from like the working class can get into or? Absolutely. Yeah. It's not, it's not expensive particularly at all. I mean, at the end of the day, motorsport is expensive. Um, but in your first year, you'll be able to buy a bike, a full spares package and go racing on less than eight grand. Definitely. Eight. Yeah. That's not bad. That's not yeah. bad at all. I might be. Yeah, this is it. So, um, you know, I mean, a lot of the people that have been talking have said, oh, you know, well, a lot of them have come from kind of pit bikes and pit bikes are 800 quid, but there's a reason they're 800 quid. <laughs> you know, um, they break down every five minutes, their chassis break all the time and all the rest of it. These bikes for the 110 CC bike, it's a hundred and uh, it's sorry, it's three and a half grand across yeah. uh, the VAT. So you're looking at about 4,200 quid. Um, and then you're going to have to buy a, buy a spares package. You're looking at probably a grand 1500 quid for that. So you're going to be five and a half grand ish to have a bike with all your spares. But at that point, you are actually ready to race. Yeah. Um, entry fees for a weekend, 120 to 160 quid, and that's a three-day weekend. Um, running costs are, are very, very low. The engines will do kind of 40, 50 hours, no problem at all. That's easily a full season without having to even touch it. Oh, Park, wow. oil and filter. Yeah. Um, and the bike will last. It won't just do one year or half a year. It will do four or five years, no problem at all. So if a seven or eight-year-old has it, they can get to kind of 11 or 12. They can move up to the next class, which is a mm. 160, and they use exactly the same chassis. All they do is change the engine. Yeah. John, have you got kids? Yeah, I've got four daughters. Would you Would you send them into motorcycle racing, knowing what you know? Uh, I only have this job because I was never allowed a motorbike, so... I grew up in a in a forces family. I was a pads brat. I lived in Germany until I was ten. Yeah. Uh, my dad was a boxer in the army, so boxing was fine. I boxed really badly at school. Boxed in my county. <laughs> boxed in the army. Boxing was great. That was really safe. Motorbikes, they're fucking dangerous. You're not allowed one. So I'm only obsessed with bikes because I was underexposed to them when I was yeah. a teenager. You know, I was that guy that used to buy C90s and hide them up the woods in case his mum and dad found them and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, so I do the. I. I try and do things differently for my girls. They they all, you know, they'll all jump on the back of whatever press bike I've got. Um, they all know about motorcycle safety and how to put a helmet on and all that kind of stuff. Uh, <clears throat> my two, I've got a 13 and 14 year old. They both regularly train at Brixton BMX Club. You know, if they, if they want to go racing BMXs, they can. They've all got skateboards. Uh, they've all expressed an interest in riding yeah. and I think they'll get to it, but I think they'll be by the time they're ready to be London commuters, I'm guessing they'll probably be electric bikes that they're cutting around on. Um, but I think the only thing that would stop me from letting them go racing is budget. You know, it's as simple as that. Everything costs money. And mm. you probably don't understand how cheap £8,000 for a season's worth of racing is. But to me, to hear eight grand to go racing for a season, 
you know, that's a that's probably a half decent tire bill for two teams for one round of a club race or something. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. That's no money at all. Uh, whether I'll be happy with them doing it, as long as they're as long as they're happy, you know, uh, it sounds a bit cheesy and cliche, but uh, it, it is what it is. I'm not going to force them to do anything. Uh, yeah. If they want to go racing, well, I would you let would you let them join the army? Um. I'd absolutely let them, but I think it's I think it'd probably be a little bit of a waste of time. <laughs> yeah. That's it. You know, we are impartial, so um, you know, you're allowed your you're allowed your own view on this podcast. Yeah. So what's in it for them nowadays? I think I'd definitely talk them into considering uh the RAF or something where they'd get a half decent trade. Oh um, the RAF are gonna love that shout out. Oh well done, John. Well no. done. <laughs> There's no loyalty here, is there? <laughs> you've got to have that silver service. Yeah, whatever they want to do, James. You know, if they want to join the army, I'm all for it. Well, the thing is, the army digging and the RAF checking. So, I mean, who's the bigger fool? Well, as a class one plant operating mechanic, I'm pretty good at digging holes, to be fair. And <laughs> look, you know, whatever they want to do. If you are, yeah. if you're my personal opinion, uh, I think there are better things for the average 17, 18 year old to go and do at the minute than than join up. Uh, if it was continually operational, like it has been for the last yeah. 15 years, um, I'd probably advise that they do do it. There's yeah. no problem if you can't go and do the good stuff. But if you're just going to be sat around oiling shovels and yep. learning to march, keeping the G10 clean, uh, you know, go traveling. Get, there, there are better ways to spend your time than, than doing that. So Hickey, that's a nice, um, it's a nice segue onto onto your life at the moment. You, you, you have an average speed of 135 miles an hour around a track on, well, it's the Isle of Man, isn't it? How far is it? 30 odd miles? 37. 38, yeah, pretty much. 38 miles. Before so, he comes in and tells a story, I've done some numbers and people that are into motorsport in the UK, if go. you can imagine getting in your car at Thruxton and driving to Donington in an hour without going to the motorway, that's that's about 140 miles. So, so just before Hickey explains how ridiculous what he does is, mm. picture trying to drive from Thruxton to Donington. Google Maps says it's about two hours 40. But if you do 135.45 miles an hour, uh, you'll be there in less than an hour. And that's without going on the motorway. So it's uh, whatever Hickey's about to say next, remember that he's, you know, you yeah. guys have to play it cool and play it down a little bit. <laughs> so that's a very good way, and, and thanks for the illustration, um, because that is a very good way of, of, of explaining how extraordinary it is what Hickey does. Now, in front of me on camera, that you know, if you're listening to this, you won't be able to see it, but there's a really relaxed-looking guy, baseball cap, in an office, and you wouldn't expect, if you walk past him in the street, that he's capable of with the very very you know 0.1% of the human race well less who can do what they do on the roads so the isle of man northern ireland um, or the irish road races etc how do you keep your brain entertained during something like lockdown so all of that all of all of that impetus to go racing and your your brain is aching to go back to that speed. How do you keep yourself entertained other than running a business? Because there's got to be a point where you you sit down at the end of the day at, during lockdown and go, I'm utterly bored. <laughs> I don't know. I'm too busy to get bored now. Um, I'm always, I always like to be busy. I always like to be doing something. But 
Um, it's not um, it's not something I've really struggled with. I mean, you've just kind of said, you know, I look quite relaxed. And anyone who knows me, and John obviously knows me a bit better than you do, but, um, you know, I'm probably the most laid-back person you'll ever come across. <laughs> um, and I'm like that all the time, even on the grid before the start of a TT race, even I'm dead, kind of just normally chilled out, just having a bit of banter with the boys mm-hmm. on the grid and just kind of having a bit of a laugh and a joke about life, really, because... Yeah, life's too serious, isn't it? Um, and so, if, when you're when you're sat there on the grid, so when you're waiting to go, because um, do you have a preferred number to go go down Bray Hill? Um, well, I've been number ten for the last few years, three years in a row now. I've been number ten. I didn't choose it; I was given it. Mm. Um, I don't really care if I'm totally honest. Um, Are number- you not nervous? No, not at all. No, I'm a bit odd like that. <laughs> See, John, how would you feel if you were you were at the gate? And, and the only way I can compare this is if you're, I've done parachuting a very small handful of times, but sitting in that door, I'd never got used to it. It, it scared the living daylights out of me. And this was just, um, you know, sports parachuting. But if you were sat on a thousand cc motorcycle, any motorcycle, and you knew you were about to go, how fast do you go down Bray Hill? About 180, 185, but we probably, we get to that within probably four seconds or so. So, I mean, just let that sink in. How do you think you'd feel in that situation? Uh, well, I've, I've not been there and done what he's done, but I've been and stood next to him and, you know, the other top three or four riders at the TT. And, it, and he's absolutely on the money. You know, there are some, some TT riders that just, you can't speak to them the hour before. You can't go anywhere near them the half hour before. Uh, and I've got pictures on my phone. I'll dig them out and show them on screen if you like. Where Hickey and I are laughing and joking like we are now, while he's wheeling his bike forward from third to second, and then he's yeah. like, "Right, I'm off. I'll see you in a bit." Laughing as the visor goes down and gets ready to go. <clears throat> the hairs on your neck go up. If you're into, you know, I'm an, I'm a proper TT licker. I absolutely live for the road racing. <laughs> and you know, to be to be in the fortunate position where you can text these guys, interview them, get to know them, have a few beers with them, uh, is, in, you know, it, it's a real privilege to be mates with these guys. But they are all very, very different. And the way that they deal with it and cope with it is different. Every single person is different. Mm. I do know that about maybe, uh, certainly before Hickey's first TT in 2014, there's usually a press, a TT press trip to build up, um, you know, get some coverage for the event prior to it. And I always make a point of getting on that trip and you can spend some time with the guys, put a few features together. And probably the second or third one that I did, maybe 2008 or nine, maybe 2010, I sat in a room in a hotel that's burned down now, unfortunately. And basically all of my childhood TT racing heroes were sat in the room waiting to talk to to journalists. So who was in there? Tell me who was in there before you carry on. uh, McGuinness, Dunlops, uh, Ian Locker, Connor Cummins, you know, basically all the guys that are winning races yeah, now, yeah, some of the names, yeah. you know, Hickey wasn't even, he wasn't even there yet. He was only just starting his TT, his BSB career. But all these guys are all sat around, uh, Cameron Donald, um, and each one of them, when I sat and, and stuck my microphone under their nose, said exactly the same thing when they thought that nobody else was listening. And it was, um, all of the other guys in this room are nuts, apart from me. I'm the only sensible one in the room. You do know that, don't you? And I was like, well, that's interesting. First bloke that said it, I thought, well, that's pretty cool. The second bloke said it. The third bloke said it. They all say it. They all think that they're as cool as a cucumber and completely normal. And it's everybody else that's mental. You know, that they just, 
they're just wired differently. You know, there's a, uh, they're just, I think John McGuinness says it's the TT racers are just made from different gravy. They're just different kinds of blokes. And if you go and sit on the grid at uh, Brands Hatch, you know, full circuit for a BSB round, the buzz and the feeling that you get from each racer is very different to if you go to Mugello and you're on a MotoGP grid. And, uh, you know, luckily with my job, I've been able to experience all of those things. Um, some of them think incredibly highly of themselves, MotoGP in particular, you know, everyone's a bit of a, um, are up themselves a little bit. Granted, they're full of talent and they deserve to be there. You can't take that away from them. But you go and stand on at the top of Bray Hill uh, and get a feel for um, just how different an environment it is. It's, it's operational. It's scary. It's not a very nice place to be at all. Do you all. think it's because of the peril, because of the furniture, i.e. the walls, the lampposts and everything, that it creates that bigger edginess? Uh, well, I think you'd probably have a different opinion to me, but I... I think that's. Um, oh yeah, I'm just going to take some wine. Sorry, two cents. So I mean, you crack on. Um, <laughs> Hickey, yeah. what what are your thoughts with that? Because um, if anyone's listening to this, go onto YouTube and just search for Peter Hickman, Isle of Man, uh, TT on board. Lap. You got to look for the lap on page before. That's the pretty one. And it's utterly extraordinary. How do you explain to someone I am in complete control when I'm when I'm going around there? Because to be honest. The the only thing I can try and think of that would possibly make any sense is that you're looking so far ahead that the immediate uh, – if you're thinking about anything that's in front of you, it's already behind you. So you're looking at the next corner, the next piece of horizon. So is it just a case of I know this course so well that it's just a case of flowing around it? Yeah, you're kind of right at that. Um, the best way, like the, the most kind of anyone who has watched it or has even been and watched or watched YouTube or anything like that, the most common question I get asked is, how do you deal with how fast you're going? Like, I'm watching it on the screen and I cannot understand how what's what's coming next. Um, obviously, circuit knowledge is a massive thing, especially when you're doing 180 mile an hour plus. You have to know exactly where you're going because everything's going past you so fast. But my, the best way of describing it um, in layman's terms is uh, if you go onto a motorway, even in your car, and you speed up to do 70 mile an hour for the first time in the day, it feels pretty fast straight away. You know, 70 mile an hour actually feels quite fast. After kind of five or 10 minutes, you've crept up to 75, you've crept up to 80, crept up to 85, and you didn't even realize you had done it. Mm. Now, the reason that you've done that is because when you first got to 70 mile an hour, your brain's taking in everything that's directly in front of yourself. Um, it then realizes that it can't do that because you're going too fast. So it starts taking things a little bit further ahead of yourself. And the faster you go, the further and further and further ahead of yourself, your brain starts to work. So by the time you actually get to that piece of tarmac or road or whatever you're on, uh, your brain's already calculated for it. So then the whole thing starts to slow down because your brain's already calculated what you're driving over, riding over, whatever. The same thing happens at just a much, much faster rate. I mean, the end of that story is once you've been on the motorway for 20 minutes, you slow down to do 40 mile an hour, it feels like you stood still. The reason it feels like you stood still is because your brain's still way ahead of itself. So, but if you just jump out of your car, you soon find out that 30 or 40 mile an hour is actually still quite fast. Mm. Um, the same thing happens for us. It's just that we're, you know, for 90 to 95% of the lap, we're over 160 to 170 mile an hour. So when we slow down to do 140 or 130, it feels like you stood still. 
Some people would call it irresponsible. They would call road racing, never mind motorcycles, but road racing, including the TT, because it's the, you know, it's the most notorious one because it's got such a high profile. They would call it irresponsible. How would the pair of you respond to such, such a claim? I'll start. More people die every year with coconuts falling out of trees and landing on people's heads. Uh, I've written that in the past. It's a genuine fact. It is what it is. Um, and it, you know, and also, I don't know how to ride a horse, so I wouldn't let my kids go and ride a horse, and I wouldn't go and ride a horse without some instruction or without wanting to do it. You know, um, as long as there's free will and more than one motorbike in the world, people are going to want to race. It, it, it is what it is. You know, bikers like bike racing. Um, statistically. It is the headline grabber. <clears throat> it's always the headline grabber. Whenever there's a fatality at the TT, it always makes the news. It's an absolute given. But if every time somebody slipped over in the shower and ended up in a wheelchair, uh, it made the front page of the Daily Mail, nobody would ever get in the shower ever again. It's as simple as that. Um, <laughs> it's, it's just a question of uh, what, you, what you choose to buy into, whether you, whether you want to enjoy it or not. Um, mm. and if you don't want to enjoy it, just walk on by and leave it to everyone else to enjoy. You know, it's not, um, there's, there's no guns to anyone's heads. All of the racers will say the same thing. Nobody that's there has been forced to be there. Nobody's got so many debts that they have to race to pay the bills. Everybody that's there is there of their own free will. Um, so why not? You know, why not? I agree. Hickey, anything to add? I think, John, I think you were, uh, you, yeah, you pretty, much, that pretty much covered it. <laughs> so uh, risk versus reward. Hickey, you've properly spanned yourself um, a few years ago, didn't you? Uh, no, not me. Not so much. But in BSB. Yeah. Yeah, BSB, BSB, I broke my back and neck in 2015, but most people don't know that. Um, but I still so really... that, to most people, that would be spannering yourself quite hard. Yeah, I broke I broke my neck in a couple of places, broke my back in three places, a couple of ribs and punctured my right lung at Old Park in 2015. Yeah. Uh, I had to miss the Northwest, which was the week after, but I went to the TT, which was only uh, four weeks after that. So, um, but most people, most people don't know that to be fair. Uh, but yeah, it's, um, it's part of life, isn't it? And it's part of the job, you know, you're gonna end up hurting yourself at some point. And that was on a short circuit, you know, that's at Alden Park where, where <laughs> you know, it's pretty safe. Mm. So how did you find your recovery from that? And did you, was there ever a point when you went, do you know what, I might take up flower arranging? No, no. In fact, I discharged myself out of hospital at three o'clock in the morning that night. Um, and then I was at the medical center at nine o'clock in the morning trying to pass myself fit to race the next day. Oh, and did you? No, they wouldn't let me. <laughs> <laughs> Valiant effort, though. Yeah. So how did you get yourself back to racing fitness? Well, I, I didn't really do anything different. Um, I went to a specialist. I went from Alton Park up to one of my sponsors, um, Chris and Sue, um, NW Electrical, they uh, they let me park the motorhome at theirs. And the back specialist who um, did Connor's back when he broke that the most probably the most famous crash at the TT is Connor's crash. That's the one that gets kind of shown the most uh, when he crashes at the veranda and he broke his back very very badly. The guy who sorted that out is funny enough a biker and he's is massively enthusiastic about the TT and stuff. Um, so he's a back specialist. So he's at Liverpool. Um, my sponsor is Wigan, so I kind of parked the motor at their house, and I kept going to to Liverpool for the checkups. Yeah. Um, initially, it was like kind of like this is a six month thing. Uh, like I said, I actually rode a bike three weeks after doing it. 
Um, I didn't really do anything different. Uh, I didn't necessarily follow the doctor's orders as such. Um, I was meant to wear a neck brace all the time, but the problem with wearing a neck brace all the time, or you lose all your muscle in your neck um, because you're trying to support your head all the time. But obviously, the neck brace does that for you. So I would wear it for kind of half a day, and the other half a day, I'd let it, I'd, I'd let my, I'd take it off, and I just wouldn't move my head deliberately, right, turning it around for obvious reasons because I broke my neck. So um, I kept active. I was still doing stuff. I was even. <laughs> I remember Sue actually ringing Chris up to come and bollock me because I was sat on the top of the roof of the motor. I might have had a water leak or something I was trying to sort out. I still had the neck brace on at that point, and I was up on the top of the motor home trying to sort it all out. Um, but, yeah, it just I kept going back for the checks, and eventually it was like, actually, it looks like it's actually knitted together quite well. It wasn't a particularly bad break, any of them. Um, obviously, the ribs with the punctured lung wasn't ideal, but the actual back breaks and neck breaks weren't um, weren't life threatening. They weren't uh, you know they weren't bad enough that if I had another whack on them, I was going to be paraplegic or anything like that. They weren't unstable. Mm. So, kind of once I knew that, I was a bit like, well, well it doesn't matter. It's going to hurt if I fall off. Yeah, but it hurt anyway. So, um, yeah, once I kind of knew that, I was like, well, I'm all right then. Aren't I? So, um, so yeah, that was that. I kind of yeah, I didn't do anything really, anything different. I just um, I kept active and I think actually a bit of movement actually is better than just being laid in a bed doing nothing yeah, yeah, that, yeah. That, that tiny bit of friction between the broken bone I think actually helps repair it faster than it does not what about the family how do they feel when when you you have a bit of a big off and then you you know you you're absolutely adamant about getting back on the bike <laughs> well fortunately enough for me I'm going to touch some wood right now you can't see it but I am um, I'm generally not so much of a crasher um, you know if you look at the average kind of BSB ride I mean BSB is my 9 to 5 job if you like um, it's what I do uh, week in week out pretty much um, your average BSB rider will crash probably somewhere between 10 and 15 times a year average throughout the year bear in mind we only have a 12 round championship so um, but including all the testing and stuff through three days at, uh, uh, at each round so yeah about about 10 or 15 crashes some are a lot more um, very few are less I'm one of the people that that's less. Uh, I think last year I did four or five crashes like throughout a whole season. And bear in mind, I'm not just doing BSB. Uh, I do BSB, I do the Northwest, the TT, Ulster Grand Prix, Macau Grand Prix, uh, Le Mans 24 hour. I've done Slovakia eight hour, Suzuka eight hour. So I do probably way more riding than, than a lot of the other riders in BSB in particular. Um, and yet still had uh, fewer crashes than, than the majority. What's your favourite race to race at? What's your favourite race to race at? And what's your favourite race to cover, John? Uh, do you know what? Whatever's next on the calendar for me, I just I just like riding bikes. I don't really care where it is. Um, I don't have a bad circuit. Uh, I don't have a circuit that I don't like going to. Whatever's next on the calendar, I tend to think is my favourite because then at least you're going in with the right mindset. Um, the TT is, is probably the ultimate. Um because it's the biggest, it's the most dangerous, it's it's everything. Um, and you can only do it once a year. It's not like you can go and practice there anytime. You know, that's the same with all the road racing. You can't go, you know, like tomorrow I could go to Cadwell and probably blag a day on and get on a track day and go and ride around, but you can't do that at the TT. So that makes it all ultimately also more special. Um, but there are all sorts of tracks. You know, I've ridden at Phillip Island. Um, I've ridden at Portimao in Portugal, which is one of, you know, is a mega, mega circuit. Um, there's loads. There's absolutely loads. Jerez in Spain. Jerez really good in Spain. Um, there's there's loads of circuits that are good. John, um, for me, <clears throat> I think if you want to be the closest to a race, um, 
listening to the TT to the senior race on the radio. So not watching it on the TV. Listening to the TT senior race on the radio. They still broadcast it live. Um, it's like some kind of 1950s form of entertainment. You know, you still you still get these weird adverts about not letting livestock on the track and all this kind of stuff. But you get a real feel of everything because you have to picture it all in your own head because you can only hear it. Yeah. Uh, if you want a hangover and a road trip, ride into Le Mans for the 24-hour with your mates, being trackside at three o'clock in the morning watching Renault Five engines in shopping trolleys with you know an <laughs> exhaust of brands in them. That's um, and if you want to spoil yourself, uh, pretty much any MotoGP round, but Bruno in particular, uh, there's a there's a pretty special atmosphere at Bruno if you want to go and watch. You know the the MotoGP like the Premier class, the stuff that everybody knows about Rossi, Marquez, all that stuff. Yeah. Um, but it, if I could only ever go and watch one thing over and over again, it would be the bottom of Bray Hill, as many beers as I could carry, sit on a wall and just watch them go by. It's the TT every time for me. So I've I've never done the TT. It is on the list as it is with many people. Um, but I have been to the Northwest 200 and I have been to the Ulster GP. Um, and they they both feel very different. Um, and I, I I thought the Northwest 200 was very enjoyable, but it felt more further up the commercial ladder than the Ulster GP. The Ulster GP, as a spectator for me, felt like proper grassroots almost, but but a very well organised grassroots race. But there was a, a huge level of of excitement and anticipation before the first the first bike went off for the first time I ever went there and I only understood it once that race had finished because then the next lot of riders are, are getting out and it's almost unrelenting you know, if you get good weather there it's just fantastic and it it was very much kind of like what you were just saying there you're you can hear it on the speakers through the radio uh, mm. and if you're looking off the tv opposite the grandstands working etc but it, it felt really accessible um, I think Hickey, I think I've seen you there at the Ulster. Um, talk to me about the Ulster GP because that's a lot shorter, isn't it? It's nothing like the Isle of Man. No, nothing like the Isle of Man, but it's still a long circuit. It's 7.4 miles round, so um, it's uh, it's still quite long as far as the circuit's concerned. You know, mm-hmm. you look at the short circuit, you're probably looking at you know two and a half mile circuit. It's a long short circuit, so um, seven seven and a half mile, pretty much 7.4 miles is uh, is a long way. It's the fastest road race in the world again now, uh, as of last year. Um, with the 136 mile an hour average that we managed to break on the Thursday Superbike race, um, uh, yeah, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty raw. It's one of the best circuits I think in the world, actually, um, short and uh, road race. It's, um, it's fairly untouched. It's very fast and flowing. There's only kind of one Nadri hairpin in it. The rest of it's um, pretty flat out everywhere. So, uh, and again, it's one of them circuits where for the majority of the lap, you're well over 170 mile an hour. So it's, mm. yeah, it's, it's a pretty impressive place to go and stand and watch. I, I made the mistake of taking my uh, Suzuki GSXR 750. It was a 2012 model. I love that bike. I really miss it. Um, but I'd been watching lap after lap on YouTube of the Ulster GP. Oh, that's so yeah, so I stuck my leathers on and went, and it was and it was at the windmill, and I completely forgot there's a giveaway sign because like this was during public public hours, and you you forget, crikey, these are these are there's tractors on these roads for Christ's sake, um, and then you know you boys are smashing around there at ridiculous speeds, 
John, have you done any road racing yourself? Um, the short answer is no. The long answer is yeah, bits and pieces. So, right. Um, back in 2011 or 12, I'm going to say 11, I covered a race called the Southern 100, which is down the bottom of the Isle of Man. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think Hickey might be able to help. I think it's probably only about four and a half or five miles. That's yeah. just a big. It's four right turns basically. It's still fast. Uh, and the difference between that and the TT is it's a grid start, so you don't go off every 10 seconds on your own. It's cat herding at 150 miles an hour within seconds of the flag dropping. Um, I covered that for a feature, and there's a uh, there's a racer that uh, unfortunately was killed at the TT called Paul Shoesmith, who was running a team, the Ice Valley team, and he was running uh, a brilliant rider who unfortunately has also been killed called Simon Andrews. And Simon has an S thousand RR, which which Hickey rides. <laughs> And um, in exchange for fitting a new driver's seat to Shuey's race van, which was a converted school bus from Scotland, he let me have a couple of laps behind the marshal on an S1000RR race bike. Uh, I'm a racer. I'm a, I'm a journalist. I don't come from a racing background. Uh, I'm a road rider, kind of fast group track day knobber is how I usually describe myself. <laughs> you know, I've done hundreds of track days, hundreds of track launches, tire tests. I go all right, but I'm not a racer. And, you know, yeah. make no bones about the fact that I don't need to be a racer and, and, and I've never really wanted to be one. I've raced bikes, you know, but nothing like uh, what, what Hickey or any of the boys do. So I have experienced road racing in as much as, you know, uh, I'm dipping a toe and Hickey's doing lengths. I, I haven't got any experience that's worth touching on, aside from the experience of being able to explain how it feels to go flat out on a really fast bike when you don't really know what you're doing, you don't really know where you're going, um, and you, but you do definitely know that you shouldn't be there. But <laughs> any of us get that. You know, we all do that on a Sunday morning anyway, on yeah. the public road, wherever we're going, if we're honest. But having the, having the luxury of knowing that there was nothing coming the other way and having a marshal on an R6 that was showing me a line that I could tuck in behind and um, <clears throat> any of, the, you know, you could ask any motorcycle journalist that knows me and they'll tell you, spot the guy that lives near Brixton, <laughs> as soon as I came in from that lap as I was taking my helmet off uh, I looked Shoe in the eye and I was like I could race here I could race here I want to race here because the feeling is just different when you're riding TT course on an open day or the Southern 100 course or any road race course because of the nature of the way that your brain's working you're looking at those telegraph poles you're looking at those flute walls you're looking at the risks and the hazards that come with road riding because you're a road rider and that's what you're uh, that's what your nature is telling you to do. When you've got your fucking, you know, eyes on stalks and you want to go as fast as you can, all you can see is a line. And all I could see was a line. And for those two laps that I did, I didn't see the church. I didn't see the graveyard. I didn't see the flint walls. I didn't see any telegraph poles. I just wanted to go as fast as I could, which wasn't particularly fast, for as long as I possibly could. So, you know, touching on bits of what Hickey has said, the feeling is ridiculous. And the way that you can calculate speed and what's coming and all of the things that matter and make guys that are ridiculously fast they're different from everyone else mm. it, you know it boils down to that experience and whether you want to embrace it or not or not bother you know i've met road racers that have come back from crashes they've done a couple of laps they've parked it up and pretended the bottom end's gone and then when you're having a beer with them that night they've just said i'm retiring i'm done you know i've had my big moment i've had my wake-up call i'm finished with road racing now there are others who just don't who just don't have any intention of packing it in. They don't want to stop. It's absolutely addictive from start to finish. And they're the guys that, that 
that make road racing as special as it is now. You know, if if I don't want to change the subject too much, but if anybody that's listening to this hasn't seen Hickey and Dean Harrison's 2018 race, you know, you can stick that into YouTube and it will change your mind. It, it will blow your mind. You know, even even as a seasoned grizzly old bike hack, which I am now at 40 years old, uh, you know, I didn't get to see Carl Fogarty and Steve Hislop race in 92, but I got to watch Hickey and Harrison race in 2018. And in my mind, that race is every bit as good as as the the, the uh, hizzy foggy race in 92. It's an absolute game changer. Yeah. As long as those people are willing to do what they're willing to do, I'm going to sit and talk about it, write about it, interview them, tell people about it. I wouldn't do it myself I, because I know <laughs> there's no point. You wouldn't want to watch me wobbling around the TT. Trust me, I've tried it many times as I can. <laughs> I can and you can go there you know we can all go there tomorrow that's the glory of the tt yeah. you, you go, have to we have to celebrate it we have to celebrate the fact that people yeah. like dean and hickey and john and the rest of them that they do this because in a world where we we have uh, fewer and fewer choices of taking riskier activities um certainly out in the public domain mm. for some very understandable reasons but Bearing in mind the the, the TT so the tourist trophy that that's that was what a nineteen was it nineteen ten nineteen oh seven nineteen oh seven so a bunch of guys this newfangled machine called a motorbike and they decided they were going to race it it doesn't matter what kind of transport is out there if it has any element of speed it will be raced HGVs get raced so motorcycles will be raced and and I totally agree if you haven't seen that that clip of Dean and, and, and Hickey do go and watch it because there, there's genuine joining. There is joy and, and there's edge of your seat type, type racing and um, of the likes that you don't so much see anymore. Um, or it's quite rare and it's celebrated through media outlets when something a MotoGP is exciting or, or certainly formula one. I mean, I, I, you know, I know that in, in MotoGP there's more overtakes on one lap than there is in quite often an entire Grand Prix, um, an entire Grand Prix race. And so, yes, it absolutely must be celebrated. Hickey, do you ride a motorcycle on the road? Not very often. I, uh, I am one of the few that does actually have a road license though. So, um, I have got a road license. I have got a few road bikes, but more for a collector's item than anything. And I hardly ever ride on the road. <laughs> what are your, what's your most prized motorcycle in your garage? Ooh, uh, I don't know really. I've got quite a few. Um, I've got some RGV 250s, talking to two strokes oh. earlier on. Um, I've got a few of them. I've got an RS 250 Aprilia. I've got an RS uh, 250 Honda race bike oh, wow. um, from the year 2000 that came out of a crate, so it's next to brand new. Um, I've got uh, I've got my first ever TT winning bike, the Superstock 1000 S1000 uh, Smith bike. Um, I bought off the team uh, after after the race, basically. Because <laughs> um, I won my first TT winning bike. Uh, I've got an MV Augusta F3, which I raced at the TT in 2015. I bought off Jack Valentine. That's an awesome bike. That was the first Trooper bike for any of the Trooper fans out there. That was the first one in 2015. Yeah. Uh, what else have I got? I've got a little tiny Cafe Racer, which is an XS Yamaha uh, 400, XS 400, which is really, really cool. I love it. Everyone takes the piss out of me because I'm six foot two and I ride it. And it's only <laughs> But I love it. It's a little twin. Um, little Cafe Racer thing. What else have I got? <sighs> I don't know. There's, there's, there's a few things, there's a few things, but um, I don't really have 
favourite is such. If the garage was on fire, which is the one that you'd grab? Whichever's nearest to the door. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. John, what about you? Have you got a collection or are you, um, are you a one-bike man? No, I, my collection kind of comes and goes. And it, and genuinely, I'm looking at my watch because in the last two hours, one of my push bikes has just been stolen out the back of the garage. Welcome to South East. It's what it is. So... You know, I'm I'm in a different position to Hickey in that I'm a spoiled journal. That's that's the phrase that people that do what I do call people that do what I do. So I can pick up the phone today and ring a manufacturer, and within a couple of days, a bike will be dropped off at the house. I test it, keep it for as long as I like, swap it for the next one. Uh, my own collection has has kind of expanded and contracted over the years. I think at the minute I've got uh, a 1978. Yamaha SR500, which I've turned, it was a flat track racer, turning it into a track bike. So a cafe racer, but just for track days. Um, it's got an R6 front end, some rolling sand, swanky bits, been tuned. Oh, nice. uh, I think I own a Benelli 125 twin shot, two stroke motocross bike from 1972. Yeah. Uh, I recently swapped a 2003 ZX6 A1P stunt bike for a Mazda MX-5. I didn't ride the bike, I didn't drive the car. I woke up and decided I was going to be a drift legend. I've never driven a car sideways ever. Uh, so they, my stuff comes and goes, and it's always project bikes, and they're always cheap, and they never go, and they never do anything. I bought a BSA B40, wow. ago, thinking I wanted to be a classic bike man. Uh, I got drunk in the shed with it a couple of times and just punted it on. For me, it's I've kind of been spoiled so much with the job that um, – for me to properly connect with a bike, it's probably best off in a box of bits. If you know, if we're just talking about riding, there's no sense me paying and collecting my own motorcycles when, you know, I've got a, a multi shroud 1260 GT being delivered tomorrow, uh, a supercharged Harley Davidson being delivered three days after that. There's a constant stream of bikes for me to ride. Yeah, yeah. But I don't need to buy them, and and I couldn't afford it either. There's nowhere to keep bikes for me in Southeast London that wouldn't cost me more than the value that they would gain while I own them. So, yeah. you know, That's it's cool. Hickey saying that he's got RGB 250s and RS 250 Aprilias. These are the bikes that I would go out and collect, you know, 92 Fireblades, 98 R1s. Yeah. I'd love one of each of them sat somewhere fermenting and gaining value. But, uh, you know, you find me a garage that you can hire in, in London that doesn't cost more than a decent RGB 250 a year. They, they don't exist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do like the garage that I've got here. Somebody will fucking pull it open and steal your push bike like they've done in the last two hours anyway. So it's not worth having them for me. I'd have thought a man like you in your history, you could have just um, booby trapped it with a bar mine and well, you'd be set to go. I'll take you right now and show you that I use paintball grenades. I've got paintball grenades on trip wires, but they're for the motorbikes, not the mountain bikes. So uh, I've got a friend who's got a, a Honda RC30 who he. He's promised I can have a go, but I don't think he'll ever let me anywhere <laughs> near it. Um, I think he got it. He got it years ago, about 10, year, 10, 15 years ago. And I think he got it for something like 15 grand. And you know what they're worth now. Good God. I mean, it's you can double that on them more. But crikey. Um, amazing. Right, Hickey, we're going to start to wrap this up because we've all got beds to go to and, and you've got work to crack on with. Um, if you were to sell motorcycles to those who were thinking about it we we've all had some time off from you know from work and we think about things that we want to do uh, and it's one of those yeah you only live once in 30 seconds how would you sell motorcycle riding whether it's road or racing to those who've never done it before 
the best high you will ever have, full stop. <laughs> you don't even need 30 seconds. Brilliant. That's it. All right. There's, there's nothing else like it. So, there's literally nothing else. That that's quite true. There is nothing else that will sap your bank balance as well if you um <laughs> if you let it. Happy days. Um, I'm just trying to find my quickfire questions. What have I done with those? Oh crikey! Here we go. Right. So I've got two for you. You can only ever do one type of racing again: roads or BSB. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, BSB. Why? Because uh, you'll be able to do it more, way more often, so that means I get to run a bike way more often. Happy days. Dream teammate. Uh, it would have to be Rossi, wouldn't it? Uh, you know, I think um, yeah, it'd be pretty epic to be a teammate of Rossi. Mega. Um, and what's next for you? When is enough enough? There is never enough. <laughs> um, What's next? Uh, have you got a goal? Have you are you going to go for for Joey Dunlop's record or for the TT? What is there anything in your sights, or is it just I'm just going to keep doing it till I enjoy it? Yeah, I enjoy it. So obviously, I want to keep winning. Mm. Um, I wouldn't say I've set a goal of trying to beat anyone else's records. Um, you know, I'm not I'm not there for for anyone else. I'm there for myself to enjoy myself and pull big wheelies and do skids and yeah, come back with a big smile on my face and do what I want to do. You know, can um, you can about. you? Can you feel Dean Harrison breathing down your neck? Uh, <laughs> um, well, yeah, he's always there or thereabouts, isn't he? So, um, but uh, you know, it's—I don't know really. I don't—I don't ever really think about it that much. I don't, I don't overthink it by any means. You know, I'm too chilled out for that. Classic hickey, that is. <laughs> I need—I need whatever it is you're drinking. <laughs> I absolutely do, mate. It's an absolute pleasure, John. Um, would you know you spent 15 years out of the military now? Any advice to someone who who's getting out uh, post COVID and thinks I, uh, you know, they, it's either either going to project management or I go into close protection? You've gone completely off uh, off off track, and you've become a journalist editor. You now own your own your own title. Any advice you'd give to someone getting out? Uh, yeah, never go back. I had the option to, to, to go back quite early on. And I think once you've made that decision to, uh, much like bike racers, once you've made the decision to retire and stop being a soldier, you know, a seaman, a hotel dwelling, air forceman, you, you can't go back. You know, the seed has been sown. You've got to crack on and just make the most of whatever's coming and use, <clears throat> it's a little bit cheesy and cliche, but use the uh, the skill set and experience that 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 the forces has given you to um, stand on your own two feet, just get used to paying for your own teeth and going to the gym. These are the things that are really hard to swallow. Um, yeah. Suck it up and just get on with it. Just get on with it. It's got to be fun. If it's not fun, you're going to end up doing health and safety or CP. That's that's not for me. It's not for anyone. Couldn't agree more. Could not agree more. Um, John, uh, the next time I see you is probably going to be when you're doing your Arts test for race remembrance. Yeah, making my four wheel racing debut. With have you the, have you told Hickey about that? No, 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 no. So the last time I texted Hickey, I was racing a uh, 407 kilo Harley at Lydon Hill last year, and I texted a few mates to ask for some advice. Uh, racers, so James Hayden, John McGuinness. Don't Peter. race a 407 kilo Harley, David. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Best advice you could give. <laughs> yeah, uh, just make sure you take the plow off the front. All the other jokes. You know. um, but we did all right, yeah. So, so I've raced. The racing that I've done is is kind of Mickey Mouse in comparison. They're feature races for magazines and TV shows, but the the 
uh, Mission Motorsport Race of Remembrance in November will be my first foray into four-wheel racing. Mm. And uh, apparently I need to get a license, so I'll be going and getting myself a Yeah, you do. A racing Hick, license. You need to tell Hickey about Race of Remembrance. As soon as you tell him, he'll be all over it. Fucking all over it. Well, he should probably come along, really, and, and uh, wave the flag and see if my heart rate... So I didn't want to cut in earlier, but most TT racers' heart rates drop once they leave the start line. I didn't get a chance to say that earlier, but the, the stress and tension that they feel is because their families are sat in the grandstand over there. And when they get off the line and go, their heart rates drop. So it would be nice to see if my heart rate drops when <laughs> the race of remembrance starts and I'm upside down in turn one on fire, wondering how to get out. But uh, So Hickey, Race of Remembrance is, um, is a remembrance service with a, a, a 12 hour endurance race attached to it. We hold it Anglesey. Um, and I think this will be the seventh year that we've done it. Uh, and we we start at three o'clock in the afternoon on a Saturday, run until nine o'clock. So it goes into the dark and then we stop. Everyone fettles the cars and then nine o'clock the next morning, everyone gets going again. Quarter to 11 in the morning, everyone stops, gets into the pit lane. You have about 900 people um, take part in a remembrance service. Uh, and then after the bugles finish from the last post, everyone gets back in and, and continues racing uh, until the afternoon. And it's just the most extraordinary event. It's very, it's a, it's a very emotional um, roller coaster. But you get all the weather, all the weather. You get glorious sunshine. You get howling rain, upside down rain, the lot. But it makes for you, you. It's like Jim said on the previous podcast. You will never race the same line because <laughs> there's so many different classes of car from you know from GT86s, Mazda MX-5s to Citroen C1s. And everything in between, caterings, etc. Uh, and we had the Frankitti brothers uh, racing uh, last last year, and they're coming again this year. But yeah, mega racing. So if you can, yeah, by all means, gonna, uh, drop by. Drop a little dip, and it's a car dip from uh, TT three or four years ago, Hickey, when we were at the uh, <laughs> at the only pub that's worth being to when the TT is on, or the TT press trip is on. And Hickey doesn't really drink that much at all. If if anything, Hickey, are you dry all the time? I don't know. Um, not all the time, most of the time. So we're in the Sefton, the Sefton Hotel on the promenade in Douglas. Uh, I'm pretty drunk. That's what I do pretty well. Uh, a good friend of mine, Al Fagan, who used to work at Fast Bikes and is now at 44 Teeth as a journalist. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's pretty drunk as well. And Hickey offers to give us this kind of midnight run lap in a hire car around the TT course. And obviously we were all in. I was like, fucking damn right we're coming. Let's go. So the three of us got in a Fiesta. Just to caveat, Hickey is absolutely stone cold sober. He hasn't had a drink. Me and Al have had more than enough for the two. <laughs> uh, I'm sat in the front passenger seat with four bottles of beer in between me. Al sat in the back with four bottles of beer in between him. And Hickey just sends it down Bray Hill. And we're just going for a midnight lap. And he's giving us a running commentary. I think it was a silver three-cylinder Fiesta one litre or something. Yeah. When we got in, uh, he, he kind of went, oh, the fuel light's nearly on. But it, the fuel range thing says 68 miles to go until empty. We're all good. We're only doing one lap. And you get... You can tell where this is going. Basically, we are <laughs> fucking flat out around the TT course at midnight. And every now and then, through like Balascari, uh, lights off, headlights off. And the reason why we turn the headlights off is because we know where the course is going. And if the headlights are off, we can see the cars that are coming towards us. <laughs> this is how Hickey's rationalizing being, you know, <laughs> down a B road that he knows really well. We don't know so well. And um, get up onto the mountain. And he's like, oh, bloody hell. 11 miles to go until we, this, this thing needs fuel. And we've drank all of the fuel. The car is running out of fuel. 
got to the um, got to Kate's cottage, got the run down to the Craig, absolutely flipping pin, balls to the wall, rev limiter, eh, 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 all that stuff. The car ran out of fuel at the 35th mile hickey, I reckon. Yeah, something like that, yeah. It, basically, the 35th mile marker is is cresting a hill. There was about 100 meters to go before uphill turned into downhill. So we all, two of us were drunk, decided that we would push the car to the top <laughs> of the hill and then see how far it would roll. So, you know, one of my TT heroes has got the door open and he's doing the steering. Me and I were drunk, laughing, giggling, pushing, drinking beers, pushed this Fiesta up and over the crest. Car started to pick up a little bit of pace. We all hopped in like a bobsleigh team, slammed the door shut. And I'm not joking, James, we must have rolled that car to the best part of 50 or 60 miles an hour on a dead engine, in neutral, no power steering, ignition's on. I think he's fucking fighting with this thing. Ran every red light that we got to, just fucking blasted through the red lights. Um, got to the top, got 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 to the top of, of Douglas near the near the start finish line. Took the little cut road down to the left, rolled down onto the prom, straight along the prom, and the car. I'm not. You couldn't script it. The car rolled to a dead stop, and I imagine the fuel tank was sucked flat like a packet of empty crisps outside the Sefton where we started. And all looked at each other and went. Let's not tell anyone about any of what's just gone on. We shut the doors, locked it, and I saw Hickey walk in and give the, the hire car keys because he was flying back at 7 a.m. the next morning. Gave the hire car keys to uh, the PR girl, to Becky, the PR girl from Honda. <laughs> Thanks very much. Hi, the hire car's outside. Here's the keys. And then I, I'm going to bed now. And that was it. Nobody ever mentioned it ever again. Got a picture my phone. But it keeps handy in a car in the dark. That's what. That's the bottom line. So, <laughs> so never tell anyone about it, but do put it on a broadcast and, yeah. and a podcast. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's a good couple of years later. We're all right now. We're three up. Yeah, it's all right. You'd be like Guy Martin when he talked about it in a bloody magazine and they tried to bloody lift him for it. Bless him. Uh, yeah. Happy <laughs> days. If you need a driver, Hickey's your man. <laughs> well, you know, never say never. Yeah, let's let's talk about it. Uh, otherwise, he can come and spanner for you. <laughs> take about 10 minutes before that car's in half and on fire <laughs> mega guys thank you very much i know it's late in the evening now uh but i i really appreciate your your time you're both very busy hickey massive fan please you know for as long as you you enjoy doing it please keep doing it because it gives the rest of us an awful lot of joy um and it lets us daydream about being a two-wheeled hero in a in a, <laughs> in a parallel dimension um John, thank you for writing about it and and talking about it and doing the videos because without that enthusiasm being being pushed on us, we'd probably end up getting distracted with far more mundane things in our lives. So um, whether you know it or not, you're doing a good thing. So thank you. Um, guys, really, really uh, enjoyed talking to you. We'd love to talk to you again. Um, and we didn't even mention Richard Rawlings once. So uh, <laughs> but we'll talk about that next time. Guys, thank you very much and have a very good evening. I'll speak to you soon. And you. Thank you. Cheers, Cheers. guys. See you later. Cheers.